while Congress is deadlocked on a COVID economic relief package. University researchers report that nearly 8 million Americans, many of them children and minorities, have fallen into poverty since May. The pandemic has pushed many who were barely making it to the brink. These are folks who were working two or three jobs, often low-wage jobs, and juggling childcare, rent payments, food insecurity, all at once. Maybe for the first time for many Americans, these inequities have been pushed into the national spotlight. The Reverend William J. Barber II has been noticing for a long time, all his life, in fact. This MacArthur Genius grantee, founder of the community organizing group Repairers of the Breach, an organizer of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, listens to poor and low-income Americans. He's invited others, including the country's leaders, to do the same. Barber advises anyone who will listen of every political party. He has brought a diverse coalition together. Many, of course, are familiar with his Moral Mondays protests and marches in North Carolina and beyond. And he still has so much work to do. Welcome to Equal Time, Reverend Barber. Thank you, Mary. And uh, thank you for inviting me to be with your audience on Equal Time. Just to get right into so many things we have to get to, but so many folks now have seen you, have heard you, listened to your message, and they've talked about your work in the context of King, Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I know from talking to you that there's actually a very real connection between you and Dr. King and the 1963 March on Washington. If you could talk a little about that. I was born. August 30th, 1963, two days after the march on Washington, and a running uh, joke in my family was that I've always been somewhat rambunctious and somewhat um, (laughs) strong-willed. My mother went into labor, pre-labor pains on the 28th, and I said, wait a minute, there's this march going on, and it's supposed to be black and white, and they're supposed to be talking about jobs and freedom, and President Kennedy is not even sure he wants them to march, and Jay Hoover is all upset about it, and they're bringing people together from everywhere. What about we just wait till after the march passes, and then I'll be born <laughs> <laughs> and see how things turn out. So um, that's the running joke in my family, but it was a, you know, I was born in 63. And a few years later, my parents decided to leave Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, My father received an invitation from his hometown in North Carolina and was asked would he come back and help participate in the desegregation of public schools. Uh, My father at that time had two earned master's degrees on the way to a doctoral degree. My mother was uh, trained at the Lane Business School in Indiana, was a very strong working government worker. Had been, both of them had been in the Silver Air Patrol. Uh, but down south, uh, they had to come home. My father's home and teaching segregated schools. My father being a physics and math teacher, my mother being an office manager. And uh, they had to bring, they decided to bring me down. And though I could have entered, integrated 
kindergarten, first grade, they said their commitment was to come south. Which meant I had to go into in segregated kindergarten, first grade, and at desegregated schools in the second grade. Uh, my mother became the first African American uh, office manager at the all white high school, and my father became uh, the first uh, physics teacher at the all white high school in Washington County, uh, North Carolina. Um, so I guess in some ways I was born in that time and then my parents decided to act in those times. Wow. So you were an activist from a young age, uh, to bring you up to this moment now in the present, we are at a very precarious time for so many Americans. So what needs to be done? What's the responsibility of our leaders of Congress to see people through this time? Well, these are precarious times. And strangely, I don't tend to use some terms that people use, like this is the worst we've ever seen, because that would have to be uh, us saying that uh, punitive genocide for indigenous people was not as bad and slavery was not as bad and other experiences that we've had down through history. Uh, swine flu in, in 19. Of 14 was not as bad. These are tough times. These are horrendous times, and they've been made worse by the inept response, I think criminal response, of the White House and Senate Leader McConnell and uh, members of the Republican Party who are following uh, Trump with his racist and neo-fascist attitude. We found ourselves entering into COVID with an economy that was working for the top and not for those at the bottom. Millions of people, 87 million people with uh, uninsured or underinsured, and 140 million people living in poverty and low wealth. That's how we entered into COVID. And with the president and the Senate more interested in division and racism and stacking the deck against uh, poor and working people than doing right by the whole economy. And so we're, we're in a situation because of this inept response of this virus, because prior to the virus, uh, they shut down the, the group in the White House that focused on pandemics and left us vulnerable and then lied about it because he was trying to cut a deal with China and didn't want to mess up a deal which really ends up being no deal and then on top of that, as public health officials say, we, we came into this with the fissures of systemic racism and poverty. And by systemic racism, I mean things like the disparate treatment in healthcare and economics and living wages and then poverty. And those fissures actually allow this pandemic to keep, take a hold and keep a hold of our society. And when you add to that, in an almost criminal non-response of the White House, lying and deception and distortion, it is it has been a recipe to allow this virus to literally feed on the American people in obscene ways uh, that did not have to exist. When you're talking about how this emergency, this pandemic has really put a spotlight on all the systemic failures, and, and you've always done yeah. that. You talk about moral fusion, 
where you bring so many issues together. Um, I wonder if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about what exactly is moral fusion that you talk about when you bring so many of the issues together. Well, this thing has laid to bear what was already there. The phrase laid to bear does not mean that the bareness was produced. It means something was covering it up, but it's always been there. And so, as I said, even before COVID happened, according to a study by Columbia University, 700 people were dying a day from poverty. Thousands were dying for every 1 million people that did not have health care. And over 140 million of our fellow brothers and sisters and children were poor and low wealth in this country, over 43% of this nation. So we were already in crisis. We were already in a moral crisis. And by moral crisis, what I mean is when we look at policy through the lens of our deepest moral frameworks, and for America, two of them. One is the moral framework of our deepest religious values, which all point us to the fact that a nation is ultimately a great nation when it cares for the poor, the sick, the children, the left out, the least, the lonely, the huddled masses yearning to be free, the immigrant, uh, um, and, and those who are on the margins. Or our deepest moral values that grow out of um, our constitutional um, values of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, um, establishing justice, not establishing injustice, providing for the common defense, not providing for a few, promoting the general welfare, not promoting uh, the hurt and harm for the most and the welfare for just a few, and ensuring domestic tranquility, not ensuring domestic division, and and equal protection under the law, not equal protection for some, and and no protection for others. And when you look at those value systems that grow out of our deepest religious values, love, truth, justice, and those that grow out of our constitution and our founding documents, the state of our public policy is found wanting. And a moral fusion movement, first of all, moral questions the realities of injustice and lack. It, it literally says there's something wrong with this being this way, and it doesn't have to be this way, according to our deepest values. Fusion is when you point out how all of these issues intersect. In other words, that systemic racism whether it be racism toward African-Americans or racism toward Latino people or racism toward indigenous people in policies. Even Kendi says racist, systemic racism is not about bad people. It's about bad policy. It's about disparate treatment in health care, in labor rights, in, in, in wages, in public education. When you look at that, those realities, the way we do it in the movement, in, the, in repairs of the breach, we then connect that to systemic poverty. And then we connect that to ecological devastation, denial of health care. And we connect that to um, uh, the war economy. And then we connect that to the false moral narrative, religious nationalism. And we show that, that 
that a moral critique requires that you fuse, you bring together addressing all of these issues at the same time because they are connected. Oftentimes, the same politicians that push one policy that hurts black folk push the same policies that hurt uh, white people when it comes to labor rights and, and, and living wages and health care. So, so moral fusion says we don't look at these issues anymore separately. We look at them together and we examine how these issues are immoral, how they, they, they uh, hurt our whole democracy. And moral fusion means we're going to bring our deepest religious values right alongside our, our public policy and then build towards a public policy that is more just, that is not merely a left issue or a right issue or a democratic issue or Republican issue or a conservative issue or a liberal issue, but really is rooted in this sense of right and wrong. This sense that something is broken when we do not live out the ideals of our deepest religious and constitutional values in our policies, that our policies ought to reflect our values, and moral fusion demands that. Now, you've taken both parties to task and talked about how they mentioned so much the middle class, but they don't talk about poverty. They don't talk about the poor, which, you know, with this latest pandemic, many people are slipping into the uh, be into poverty uh, and low wealth. But you've also talked about the poor exercising their power, using it to change who represents all of us and, and voting. Can you talk about that? Well, let me see if I can take the two of the, that two-tiered question and open it up. Yes, I, I don't even know how any movement, and you mentioned uh, before Dr. King, Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement challenged everyone. Now, to challenge everyone doesn't mean you're foolish. It doesn't mean you don't know who's trying to do right and who, who's, who's trying to do totally wrong. And you can recognize the difference between someone who may be partly with you and somebody who's not with you at all. And there are times at the ballot box you make those decisions in terms of who you elect. But a moral fusion movement then says once we elect people, we push them. We push them to something deeper because too often we make allegiances to less than what we actually should hope to be and can be. There are several things when it comes to poverty and race. When it comes to race, too often we look for a thing that points what, what racism is. And if we move that thing, we will deal with racism. When in fact, racism is not a thing, it's many things. It is systemic. So racism uh, can be police, racist, police brutality, but as horrific and horrendous as that is and the lives that it costs, you can't stop the critique of racism with just police brutality. You have to deal with voter suppression. You have to deal with healthcare disparities and mass incarceration and resegregation and uh, public schools and cutting public school monies and how all of those things and many more have a disparate impact on black people. But then you have to talk about the racism toward uh, uh, brown immigrants from Mexico and, and black and brown immigrants from other countries. And then you have to talk about the continuing mistreatment of our indigenous people. That's racism as well, that they don't have the nation status that they were promised years and years ago because it's all rooted in race. But then you have to show that racism is not just against black, brown, and indigenous people. It may be targeted there, 
But ultimately, it's against democracy itself and humanity itself. In this regard, we have to challenge both parties, sometimes in different ways. Like, for instance, we have to challenge Republicans because ever since the election of Richard Nixon and Pat Buchanan advised him, along with Kevin Phillips, they decided on a plan called positive polarization in which uh, uh, Kevin Phillips told Richard Nixon, all you got to do is win in politics and find out who hates who. And the easiest way to do that now, he said this in 68, is to pit black and white people against each other, particularly in the South. And if you do that, you can win for the next 50 years. So that's so we have to criticize how Republicans have not just been complicit, they've been they have been actually at the forefront of creating racial divisions and using dog whistles and code words uh, from, from, you know, I mean, it could go back further, but from Nixon all the way through Reagan and George Bush one and two and now. And what we simply see is that that plan and that trick of what they call positive polarization has gone, has gone off, <laughs> has, has just gone crazy, is on steroids. But on the other hand, you also have to challenge Democrats who too often don't want to deal fully with racism. When they do, they want to find, as I said, a issue, police brutality, uh, people pulling down statues, uh, what happened in Charlottesville. And, 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 and that's good. And it has to be, as police brutality, as horrific and horrendous as that is. But some people will actually be against a racist cop, but then will still uh, support racist voter suppression and disparate treatment in health care. Uh, some, some of our white brothers and sisters will do that. They will be against what happened in Charlottesville. They will declare that a statute needs to come down, but they won't fight as hard as they should to move the statutes in the law that continue to create disparate treatment. And so we have to challenge even Democrats on the issue of poverty. You know, Republicans often racialize poverty. Democrats too often run from poverty. You know, right now we're in the middle. We, since May, we've had 8 million new people fall below the poverty line. Now, they were already poor. They were low wealth. But to fall below the poverty line, 8 million, especially when it does not have to be. But the fact that you have 53,000 people per day falling into poverty since May in the middle of a pandemic. And poverty is not seen as a matter of national security. And addressing poverty is not seen as an investment in the future, but, at, but instead too often uh, as, as trying to get money we don't have, even though we know we have the money because we always find it for corporations, or suggesting that uh, helping the poor, doing living wages and having health care is socialism. So I, you know, yes, we have to challenge both. We have, uh, real quickly, we had a, a major get out to vote um, mass online forum call, and we had over 2 million people to show up online and we invited Trump. He didn't show up. We invited Vice President Biden. He did. And, and we were glad to hear him say that changing poverty was one of his theories of change and that he clearly understood, for instance, some of the positions he's taken, like, $15 in a union as not only paying people what they deserve, but helping to end poverty because he recognizes that if we had 15 in a union, immediately 49 million people in this country would rise up from poverty to be making a living wage. That's, that's huge, man. 49 million people with just one 
public policy decision. I mean, so many people, you talked about how divisive our politics have gotten. And, you know, I talk, try to talk to folks, Americans, people I run into, and they're just exhausted by it. And they try to turn it off. Uh, you you never do. You you talked about the voting rally, and uh, I saw you had the Remember Ruth and Brianna Rise Up and Vote Pray In. Uh, I'm always looking out for my texts, my notes I get from you, my calls. <laughs> You're talking to me about an action, a meeting, a prayer session, a voting rights event. And what motivates you? Who motivates you to just keep going? It's interesting you would raise that today of all days. <laughs> I've been thinking about that. You know, the day that we went, we had 100 clergy of every different faith on September 29th that said we were going to walk COVID safe, walk from the Capitol past the Supreme Court to the Senate building and pronounce judgment and declare that what the Senate was doing was not political, but it was evil. It was unjust. It was mean. And that it was a violation of the basic fundamental principles of God to do what they're doing, shrouded in the lies. And the oppression and the and the, and the and the denial that they're doing it in, and we said that we to do it even before a woman's body had been placed in the grave. To be more interested in stacking the Supreme Court than passing police reform when women a woman has been shot, you know, in her own bed uh, uh, for no reason, and then her name uh, the uh, AG in Kentucky attempt to basically erase her name from the case. And then we said to let people die, not pass just stimulus, was, was, was immoral. It was evil. It was unjust. And we needed to pronounce judgment. And we did. And we had no joy in that. And then a couple of days later, you know, was, you know we, we get all of this revealing of all of the people who uh, were suffering from COVID having gone to an event without putting on their masks. Now, it, we have, we're not gloating in that. What we were trying to say, when we say judgment, it doesn't mean like witchcraft, like you can pronounce judgment. is wh- What judgment is biblically is warning people that if you keep on down this path, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have adverse effect on you and those around you. That's just basic physics. What goes up must come down. You keep on messing around, sowing the wind of racism, you're going to reap the whirlwind. You keep lying and lying and lying about a virus, eventually those lies are going to catch up with you. You walk around proud as a peacock, think you're better than everybody else. Eventually, one day, you're going to be looking up so high, you're going to stumble and fall. We, we, we don't pronounce judgment as we're happy. We, we're saying that a McConnell, just as he has the capacity to be mean, has the capacity to be merciful. A Trump that has the capacity to lie has the capacity to tell the truth, if they will repent. And there are consequences if they don't, and there can be a whole lot of blessings if they do. But religious leaders have a responsibility to challenge them and to challenge all systems of injustice. Now, Mary, you mentioned something about people being frail. Now, I'm, I hope this doesn't come across as um, not caring. I'm tired. Uh, but I didn't just get tired when we got into COVID, nor tired when we got to Trump. You know, we started the Poor People's Campaign in 2016 before Trump ever got in office and then certainly 2017, 2018. And it's the people, the 140 million people, the remnant of them that we meet all over this country, they have said to us, our backs are against the wall and we have no other choice but to fight. 
So how can I be tired in the sense of wanting to quit and give up when people who live in much worse conditions, who are at the center of this campaign and the foundation of it, continue to say, we have to fight for change. Even if it doesn't all happen right now, we have to declare it ought to happen right now. But also, may I remember history. And I, I say to your listeners, uh, be careful how, how we get tired when we, if history says there were people who had to stay faithful through 250 years of slavery. Women had to stay faithful all the way until 1920 until they earned the right to vote. Um, the Montgomery bus boycott was 381 continuous days. Uh, the, 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 fair house, the fight for the fair housing law from, from uh, uh, um, 63 to 68, five years, took place in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was a Catholic brother, Father Gropey, that uh, led people there for, for five straight years. Cesar Chavez once walked a thousand miles between July and August, walked a thousand miles, not drove a car, walked a thousand miles in order to encourage and to build the United uh, Farm Workers Union. And so really this is the time we have to gird ourselves up because I bet you this, those who are promoting racism and justice, they are getting tired. Those who want to push back against what's right, they are not getting tired. They are, if anything, they're getting worse. <laughs> you reference so many movements uh, as part of the struggle, women's movement, uh, LGBTQ, uh, indigenous rights, workers' rights. Your movement has always, and I remember those marches uh, in Raleigh, multiracial across the issues, across geography, the country, and it seems so divided, but how have you all always kept your, these coalitions united? In the cause. Well, we start there. When moral fusion movement, as I said, when you start with moral fusion movement, it requires two things. Three things, moral analysis, moral articulation, and moral action. From a deep moral perspective, the one that we operate from, uh, from the Constitution and from our deepest religious values, the question is, how can you say you care about humanity unless you care about all humanity? And how can you stand against injustice somewhere if you don't stand against injustice everywhere? And how can you say you care, for instance, about black people, but you don't care about brown people or white people or gay people or straight people? There's a sense in which we cannot have these hearts that are full of schisms and movements that are full of schisms and minds that are full of schisms. Ultimately, racism is a hatred for humanity, a hatred for democracy, and ultimately it will hurt us all. And so, Mary, I, I don't know how to not have a diverse movement. Our problems are not limited to one people. And when you organize that way from the bottom up, you know, in moral fusion, it's like, you know, morality is like the foundation. So the way you organize is you organize from the bottom up, not from the top down. And so the very, the very focus of our organization is forward together, not one step back. If somebody's hurting our brothers and sisters and we won't be silent anymore, 
the very foundation of it is bringing everybody in the room to address these five interlocking injustices with an intersectional moral response. To bring it a little bit back to King, he used to always reference that uh, saying, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And when you look at the world today, where are we on that arc? Are we bending towards some justice? Mm. Mm. The key word is bending. And something that's bending has to be bent. And in order for something to bend, it has to have somebody doing the bending. So the moral arc of the universe is not a stagnant reality. It requires people who keep bending it, who in their strength and in their grace and in their mercy and in their love and in their sacrifice and in their suffering and in their speaking truth, they keep bending it. And the more of us that engage in bending, the faster it has been. It's not just left to God alone. And that's why the Poor People's Campaign, we now say there are 140 million of us. It shouldn't be that way. But since it's that many of us, we're going to put some weight on the ark. There's 64 million of us that can vote. One third of the American voting population is now poor and low wealth, or at least 30% of it is. It's time for us to put some weight on the ark. We've got all of these churches and allies and People that are joining together, it's time for the church, not just the and the synagogue and the and the and the mosque, not just to be inside the building realities, but in the community and in the voting booths and in the political suites, not just for an election, but we have to elect to do some bending. We got all these young folk that know there's a better way. We that we that we've got to do some bending. We need advocates to do some bending. And if we attempt to bend the moral art, in, in my faith tradition, it says faith without works is dead, which means faith with, with works gets divine assistance. And faith with works has power. So the moral art of the universe is long. It's long. It's like it's pointing upward, like, right? It's, it's sometimes out of whack. But it bends toward justice because there are people who keep bending, who keep working, who keep pulling it toward the things that ought to be. And I think that's where we are called to be in this moment. I know that you have so much on your plate. I I do want to indulge you. I ask all my guests one question. I ask them, what is the question that I have not asked you that you wish I had? Because you have the answer. Wow. What's my favorite song these days? That's the question. (laughs) Well, what is your favorite song and why? Today, my favorite song is because it is, I mean, it's, first of all, it's it's a jamming jazz piece. (laughs) But but the words, you know, it's like, it's a song worth dancing to. Because the work, words will make you march. Right, it's not a waste of time kind of rhythm. Well, what and is it? It's the song. It's the song. <laughs> it's the, <laughs> I'm teasing you. It's the song. It's the waking, not the rise. It's not the waking. It's the rising. It's the 
It's a tribute to Nina Simone. It's not a newer song, but it's one that I've been living with for now a year, and I play it like all the time. And it starts out, it's not the waking, it's the rising. And basically what it's saying is, it's one thing to be woke, it's another thing to get out of bed. And then it starts laying out the thing. It's not just what's against you. It's what you rise to meet. And then the last part of it says, and Nina cried power. And so and so for call power. And we can cry power. And I could cry In other words, we awake and we rise, we have power. And I think that's so needed in this moment. It's so needed. We can't. We, it's, we, we must be awake. We must be awoken. But that still is not enough. We must rise. And we must utilize being awake. And when I see all of the movements Poor people's campaign, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, women, and I see them coming together and having conversation with them, Sunrise and, uh, and the indigenous people in the Af and, and the uh, uh, Oak Flats movement of the Apache Nation, and we're all now talking. It's like we're all coming together and we're all waking, but we're also rising. And I, and I, and I, and I feel like dancing. I think we have a scoop because I don't think we don't hear the Reverend William Barber sing too much. We don't know what he jams to. And you just gave equal time. <laughs> a little scoop. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I can't dance, th- by the way. I, I, might not, I might have a cane and be crippled, but don't, don't, don't mess with me. I, I'm forewarned. Don't mess with me. I'm I forewarned. After COVID, you find the floor. And I'll bring the tunes, and we'll see about this dancing business. And I think a good Catholic girl knows how to dance a little uh, bit. Uh, yeah, you know, we we <laughs> we're, we're kind of wicked in our own ways. Reverend Barber, thank you so much. The Reverend William Barber, uh, Poor People's Campaign, so much more out there all the time. Listen to this sermons. He's been a guest on Equal Time. I want to thank you so much, and for your work, and for spending this time every time I spend it with you. And I know you said you don't like to hear this about being inspired, but you, you, you hear it a lot, I'm sure. Well, I like, I like to hear it when you say it because you understand the real meaning of it. If I've done anything to inspire somebody to not only feel good, but to act good, to live good, and most of all, to live courageously, uh, then God be praised. Because at the end of the day, forward together, not one step back. That's how we're going to come out of this as a nation. Um, we got, we're going to address these five interlocking adjustments. In fact, it's almost though we have no other choice if America's going to be. That's really what's in front of us now. Can America be? Not optimist, but you don't need to be to have hope because hope comes through the despair, not around it. And I have so much hope when I see the people who are saying, we're not giving up yet. You know, I, so, somebody, and I close on this, Mary, 
the marching, the protests right now, we see the things we're doing in all these movements. Though people are crying, that's actually the hope because the hope is in the morning. People protest what they believe still has the possibility to be better. What what a, a notion, what a sentiment to end on. Thank you again. Um, get some rest. Take care now. Thank you all so much. You too. Take care. Bye now. So what's keeping me up at night? Excitement. Yes, I'm excited by how excited Americans are about voting. In North Carolina, where I'm living right now, early voting has started. And on the morning of the day the polls open, I gather with hundreds of others in line, socially distanced and wearing masks, of course. Besides my son's former track coach, I did not see anyone I knew in that long line. But I felt joined with them in something called the American Experiment, democracy. Across the country, voters are breaking records. Mostly it's a positive, though long lines are also troubling signs of a system that's not ready. Sometimes, but not always, by accident. Any discussion of voting has to include talk about voter intimidation and suppression. But no obstacle seems to be stopping the folks I see and talk with. So how will it turn out? I have no idea. But Americans caring enough to show up and exercise a right too many have fought and died for, well, that's exciting. It's what's keeping me up at night, and it's good. So let me know what keeps you up at night. Send me a tweet at mcurtisnc3. And check out my latest roll call column on why that Georgia senator's mockery of his colleague, Senator Kamala Harris's name, means a lot more than a slip of the tongue. Thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.